Hello, our reading is on page 481 of these Bibles, and it's Ezra chapters 9 and chapter 10. So page 481, Ezra 9 and 10, starting at verse number 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered round me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our oh God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and has given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us 
leaving us no remnants or survivor. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested and they took the oath then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan son of Eliashib while he was there he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles a proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honour the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. There are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our gods in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jeziah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shebatai the Levites, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they had finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. From the descendants of Joshua, son of Josedach, and his brothers Mazaiah, Eliezer, Jareb, and Gedaliah, they all gave their hands in pledge to put away their wives 
and for their guilt, they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. From the descendants of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah. From the descendants of Harim, Mazaiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah. From the descendants of Pasher, Eloani, Mazaiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Jozabad, and Elisa. Among the Levites, Jozabad, Shimei, Keliah, that is Kalita, Pethahai, Judah, and Eliezer. From the musicians, Eliashib. From the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And among the other Israelites, from the descendants of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Benjamin, Leazar, Malkijah, and Beniah. From the descendants of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. From the descendants of Zatu, Eloani, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azizah. From the descendants of Bebai, Jehoahan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athlai. From the descendants of Mani, Meshulam, Malak, Adonai, Jeshub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. From the descendants of Pahath, Moab, Adna, Kilal, Beniah, Mazaiah, Mataniah, Beliel, Benui, and Masaniah. From the descendants of Harim, Eliezer, Ishaijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. From the descendants of Hashem, Matanai, Matata, Zabat, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. From the descendants of Bani, Badai, Amram, Uel, Beniah, Bediah, Kaluhi, Vaniah, Merimoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matanai, and Jesu. From the descendants of Benui, Shemai, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadabi, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. From the descendants of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Beniah. All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. And so ends the book of Ezra. Thank you very much indeed, uh, John, for reading that out to us. And great to see you here. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Church Islington. It's great to be able to welcome you. And it would be great help to me as well if you could uh, keep the book of Ezra open. It's on page 481. I know maybe you were a bit shocked by that passage from the Bible, were you? Uh, it was the first time I read it. Um, perhaps your heart sank when you saw another list of names. Perhaps you were shocked by their wives that were sent away with their children. I'm going to suggest that those two things are a great reason to pray before we look at this chapter, these chapters in more detail. So uh, perhaps you'd like to join me in praying. Let's pray. Father God, your words are sometimes challenge, challenging for us to understand, but they're weighty and they're wonderful, and they make us think and they give us hope. And so I pray, Father God, as we listen to your voice, that we would experience the power that your words have to change human hearts. Now, please give us attentiveness, we pray, to the things you want to say to us. Show us Jesus Christ in every page of Scripture. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, well, I happened to see a copy of the New York Times. I, say, I don't always read the New York Times. Uh, but it seems that uh, what the people of America are struggling with at the moment, if the New York Times is anything to go by, is a sense of failure. Maybe we're feeling that too. 
struggling with a sense of failure. This is the headline in the New York Times yesterday, our Afghanistan failure and the American empire in retreat. It's hard, isn't it? Uh, when you're struggling with failure, we've all felt it, I guess. Maybe we were told when we were growing up that we were a failure and that was a saying that we believed, saying that we took to heart. We've all experienced failure somewhere between um, maybe a career that's proved to be a huge disappointment, just nothing that we dreamed of really. Everything from there to, uh, to an Ikea wardrobe that we just can't put together, you know, even with the instructions. We just can't work out which piece goes where. But a, but a long-term sense of failure is a really draining thing, isn't it? It's a really draining thing. It really undermines your confidence and it stops you making plans. It takes away your energy. It's just so hard to keep going. And that's why that the thing that you count as a failure in your life determines a lot about you. Those things that you, you choose to name as failures, you choose to think about as failures, say a lot about you. Well, the book of Ezra has been full of some notable successes. Uh, you might remember we, we summed up the book of Ezra uh, using five Russian dolls as God begins to rebuild his people from the inside out. So some notable successes. God started with their hearts, you remember? He started with their hearts, chapters one and two. And um, then he brought them to the altar and uh, to the temple. He brings them back to worship. Gives them worshipping hearts. That's the first half, restoring worship at the temple. It's been a great success in the 5th century BC. Despite significant opposition from the outside, chapters 5 and 6, it's been a great success, restoring worship at the temple. And then uh, the second half, as Ezra comes back to Jerusalem, chapters 7 to 10, restoring the people. God's restoring the obedience of his people. He's bringing them back to the law. Ezra is, a, is, is an amazing teacher of God's law. That's his, um, that's his role. And the second half of the book talks, talks about how the obedience of God's people is, is restored. It's all going really well. Um, but it ends on a note of failure. The whole book ends on a note of failure. And, and what God's people count as failure determines a lot about their lives in Jerusalem in the 5th century BC. It says a lot about them. I wonder what we count as failure at Trinity Church Islington. What we count as success. I wonder in, in, in your life if you have one of those honest moments you look in the mirror what are your greatest failures what would you count as the areas where you'd failed if you were being honest looking back because as the, as the book of Ezra comes to a close as we come to the end of our summer series called rebuilding the church we're going to learn that there is a there's a right response and there is a radical remedy for the sense of failure that we might that we might feel so two points then and here's the first one comes from chapter 9, a right response to failure, a right response to failure. Um, a long time ago, I used to work as a doctor. It's quite a long time ago now. I wouldn't, hesitate, I, I wouldn't dream of picking up a scalpel now. But um, 
if you're waiting for surgery, you might not want to listen to this bit. Um, occasionally, occasionally surgeons make mistakes. Uh, I was told when I was a doctor that um, I'd probably make a serious mistake about every six months. <laughs> it's quite frightening, isn't it? But I remember my consultant saying to me, um, with all seriousness, one of the most serious things he said to me, actually, um, he said, he said, Jeremy, if, if you want to be a surgeon, what matters most is not how you cope with your successes, but how you deal with your failures. So that's what will, what will make you a good surgeon. And so chapter 9 shows us how God's people deal with their failures. Um, have a look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Because as, it, as Ezra's been teaching the law, then a serious failure comes to light. Let me read verses 1 and 2. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Those are the sort of, um, the sort of people throughout the Old Testament who've sort of surrounded the land of Israel and, and, and at various times led them astray. Verse 2 is talking about the leaders again. Said the sinner set in at the top, you see. Verse 2, they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Well, to our, our Tawaris, that sounds a bit racist, doesn't it? I don't know if you're thinking that. Sounds a little bit like that to me. The detestable practices of other cultures. You'd never describe another culture like that, would you? Um, nowadays, in the 21st century. Um, but the mistake, you see, the mistake that, that the leaders have made in Ezra's day is not, is, is not, um, it's not to do with multiculturalism. It's not that they've got their kosher food on one side of the plate and their kebab on the other side of the plate. It's, it's, not, it's not to do with multiculturalism. The mistake is to do with unfaithfulness to God's word. See, end, end of verse 2. It's to, it's to do with unfaithfulness, what the Bible calls sin. I'm disregarding what God said and, 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 and doing something that you feel is, is more profitable. In this case, because you've been influenced by, by other people. You know, believing people from other nations had always been welcome to join God's people, all the way through. So you just ask um, Rahab or, or Ruth or a number of people in the Old Testament. Believing people are more than welcome to join God's historic people in the Old Testament. Wide open to people like that. But, but God warns his people repeatedly in the Old Testament, if you let unbelieving people get too close to you, like in your family, for instance, they're going to lead you astray and you're going to stop being faithful to his word. All kinds of warnings about that. They're not to marry unbelieving people from other nations for that reason. You know, this has nothing to do with racial purity at all. Everything to do with spiritual purity, you see. And that's failure. That's failure as determined by God. It's turning away from his word. That's failure. So the problem's described in verses 1 and 2. And then there's a, there's a pause in verses 3 and 4. It's like in a, in a movie where you have a reaction shot. Yeah. 
And so, um, verses 3 and 4, have a look down at this. Uh, have a look down at that, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 9. This is Ezra speaking. When I heard this, what does he do? Okay, that, it was worn out. I just, I, Justin, is that your shirt? I'm sorry if that was. He tears, tears his tunic and cloak, sign of deep distress in the Old Testament. Pulls hair from his head. And his beard. I, I can't do that. And then he just sits down appalled. Like with the weight of it all. It's like the weight on his shoulders just, just forces him down to the ground. Verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round because of this unfaithfulness to the exiles. See, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice, which is three in the afternoon. It's interesting, isn't it? Because... What God's people have done, um, it's not appalling or horrifying by, by normal standards, is it? I mean, um, you know, there's no, there's no drug taking, there's no sex scandal, there's no, no money laundering. There's nothing that would appear on the front page of the sun. They just had some nice weddings. But Ezra was right when he saw disobedience to God's word as an appalling failure. So the problem, verse 9, and the pause, and then after that comes the prayer. There's some painful honesty, isn't there, in Ezra's prayer. Did you see that? Verses 6 and 7. Words from the heart. As Ezra prays, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you. Our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. And what defines their failure? Or well, the word of God defines their failure. Verses 10 and 11. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants and the prophets when you said. And it goes on to give a summary of what the prophets have said. Such painful honesty about their failure. And such perfect recognition of the grace of God. Do you see that? God's undeserved kindness. Have a look down in verses 8 and 9. You can list the ways in which God has been gracious. I make it nine ways. I don't know whether you agree with me. Listen to the graciousness of God in, in response to their unfaithfulness. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has, one, been gracious, in two, leaving us a remnant, and three, giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. Literally, he's given us a firm peg in his temple, something that can't be moved. So, do you remember what it was like to go to school for the first time? Uh, when I went to school for the first time back in 1827, whenever it was, then, um, uh, you know, you're, you're standing there and it's little spindly legs and your pair of shorts and, um, and you're led. I, I, I remember it. I'm being led into a little primary school. But how do you know that you're expected? You've got a peg. It's got your name on it. It's there in the school hall. Peg, you know, so high. Jeremy Hobson written on it. It's how you know that you're expected. God has given them a firm place, a peg in his sanctuary. What have we got up to? Number three. And so our God, number four, gives light to our eyes. And, and five, a little relief in our bondage. Though we're slaves, our God has 
Six, not forsaken us in our bondage. He has seven, shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has eight, granted us new life to rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins. That's what they've done. And he has nine, given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Not a physical wall yet. That's going to come in the, in the book of Nehemiah. A, a spiritual wall. He's looked after them, kept them safe. The problem, the pause, and the prayer. Calling on God's grace, a right response to failure. And we need to hear that. It's the New Testament people of God. That's who we are, the New Testament people of God. It's, it is absolutely true that the people of God are, are, are no longer racially defined. Far from it. Far from it. This has nothing to do with interracial marriages. That's not what it's saying. But we're being taught what to do with our failure. That's what it's teaching us to do. You know, on the one hand, it teaches us how to measure failure or how to assess failure. We might carry with us all kinds of feelings of failure. Maybe some of those have come from childhood. All kinds of ways in which we feel inadequate or things we things we we got wrong a long time ago that have haunted us and and, and those things undermine our confidence. They'll undermine our confidence as we go into a new academic year. John's already talked about some of the plans we've got. But failure isn't always what it looks like. You know? But what do God's people look like in the book of Ezra? A very, very few in number. They have very, very few resources. But that's not what's at issue in the book of Ezra. That's not what's mentioned. Those aren't measures of success or failure in God's economy. It's not what we look like which, which counts. We need to get that clear. You know, here at Trinity, as God does his rebuilding work, you know, we, sometimes we're going to look small. We might be few in number. We haven't got a huge staff team. We haven't got masses of resources. We haven't got the latest equipment. That's Okay. In, in our personal lives, we might feel like a failure because we haven't got a whole heap of friends. Maybe we haven't found a, a marriage partner. Maybe we just can't seem to achieve what other people can achieve. And some people just have so much energy. You know, they just seem to get 58 things done before breakfast. You know, and there, there we are, just struggling to get out of bed. Put our clothes on for another day. We feel like a failure sometimes. But the book of Ezra says faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is success. That, that's very liberating, isn't it? We don't have to look successful. We need to hear that. Faithfulness to God's word is success. Keep going. We don't have to be judged by, by the way things look. We're to read God's words and take it to heart. That is success in our lives but on the other hand it it challenges us as we think about how we manage the failures that maybe are failures to accept God's word fully maybe maybe we have failed in in ways that are important spiritually maybe we have You know, there are times when our unfaithfulness to God is, is, well, appalling. 
We mentioned some ways last week that we might want to, you know, let the Bible challenge us. You know, I, I don't know how you're doing with those. I, I've been thinking about them all week, really. Sometimes we make it all about ourselves when, when, when the Bible says we're to count others as, as more significant than ourselves in the book of Philippians. We're servant-hearted. Sometimes we get angry when God's Word tells us that it doesn't bring about the righteous life that God requires. Sometimes we, we criticize other people when the Bible says we're, we're only to say what's useful for building other people up. You know, I've failed in those areas. It's right to say that. So what do we do? We, we rehearse the truths of God's grace. He's given us a firm place, a peg in his presence through Jesus Christ. You notice the, the but now in, uh, in verse 8 that introduces Ezra's awareness of God's grace. Now, there's another but now that comes in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. But now, says Paul, Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been made known. This is to every Christian, everyone who's come to him. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Racial divides no longer count under the new covenant. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's me. And all are justified freely by his, what? By his grace. You know, Ezra's response is so tentative, isn't it? Do you notice that at the end of his prayer, it's sort of, here's your mercy, here's your judgment. Um, which one's going to win? As we repent, and we've seen the cross of Jesus Christ, we're so totally put right by the grace of God, we can say with confidence we're forgiven people. A right response to failure. Uh, have you found it? Painful honesty that, that leaves you with nothing left but the grace of God. Yeah, our sins sometimes are appalling, but His grace is even stronger. If you haven't discovered that yet, please don't go before you've asked someone how to find out some more. Right response to failure. Um, but Ezra doesn't leave it there, and we're not going to leave it there either. But the second point's a bit briefer, and it comes from chapter 10. And we're calling this a radical remedy for failure. A radical remedy for failure. Um, I, I mentioned surgery earlier on. And uh, there's, this, uh, there's this interesting technique uh, that's used in some operations when you're trying to remove, uh, remove a tumor, a really serious illness. Um, you, you sort of, you take out the tumor. Sorry, Ali, I don't, I, I'm not going into detail. I promise, not too much detail. Um, you, you, you take out the, the thing that's gone wrong and you send it off to the laboratory uh, and you sit there with your arms crossed for 10 minutes, make polite conversation. And then the lab tells you whether you've removed it completely. They look at it under a microscope and they call you on the phone and they say, yeah, it looks good. Or you know you need to take out some more. And you need to know where the whole tumor has been removed. And uh, um, at the very least, chapter 10 is very radical surgery, isn't it? Very radical surgery. Too radical to read in many ways. Um, have a look at verse 3. That's what they decide to do. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord. 
and of those who fear the commands of our God, let it be done according to the law. That's difficult, isn't it? I, I haven't got all the answers, but let me just say three things. Um, first to say that the radical action here seems to reflect the seriousness of this of the situation. There's nothing glib, nothing superficial about this. I'm sure many tears were shed. We're told about many of the tears that Ezra sheds. And sometimes when you're in a desperate situation, there's no easy way out. Yeah? That's the first thing to say. Um, secondly, to say that when, when the wives and children are sent away, um, it seems like they're provided for under the law. The end of verse 3 seems to suggest that uh, let it be done according to the law there are no more details given really um, we don't know quite what that looked like but it seems like they were provided for in some way or another um, thirdly let me just say in passing there is no suggestion at all that Christians should be divorcing their husbands or wives if, if they're not Christians that's simply not not what this part of the Bible is teaching. If you want to read a bit more about that and about divorce in general, 1 Corinthians 7 is, uh, is a place that you can go and read that up. It's difficult, isn't it? But what, what is the, what's the chapter teaching us as a whole? Just very briefly, it's a radical remedy for failure. Now, what happens is that Shechaniah sketches out a proposal. That's in uh, verses... One to six, the proposal about sending their wives and children away. Ezra's still in mourning, isn't he? Verse six, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Elisheb. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. He's, he's no detached academic, is he? This is a grief. And then an inquiry started, that's in um, verses 7 to 15. Each case carefully and compassionately examined. If, if, you, if you count it all up in verses 16 and 17, 110 cases in 75 days. So these are, these are carefully investigated, verse 17. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who'd married foreign women. women. And then verses 18 to 44. It's a somber end to the book, isn't it? Do read on in Nehemiah if you want to see how things continue. It's a somber end to the book of Ezra, 110 guilty men. And that's how the book ends, listed. Probably in reverse order, if you compare this list with the two lists that have come previously in the book of Ezra to make a distinction between those who deserve honor and those who have conducted themselves unfaithfully but you know what's hard as well this is exactly the same mistake that God's people have made all the way through their history all the way through their history that's what caused the exile get to the end of Nehemiah what do you find people doing exactly the same thing so heartbreaking isn't it exactly the same thing is gonna happen again Old Testament history closes with a group of people trying to serve God and failing. Praise God then that, what, 400 years after the end of Nehemiah, 
four centuries after the end of Nehemiah, God rebuilds his church all over again. Only this time, it's Jesus Christ gathering disciples to himself, showing believers the kingdom. And he changes people from, from the inside out. He gives them new hearts. Yeah? And he comes to be the sacrifice on the altar. And he's the true temple. Destroy this temple, says Jesus, and I will build it in three days. It comes as the, the true meeting place between people and God. And so he changes people who have failed to be faithful to his word. He changes them from the inside out. People like you and me, he changes us. How does he do that? Well, he transforms them by the Spirit to live for him. He transforms us, promises us a future free from sin. It's a radical remedy for sin. Because it, it, it pays the penalty for sin as Jesus dies and there's a sacrifice on the cross for us. Pay the price for everything we've done wrong. He, he pays the penalty for sin and takes away the power of sin we no longer have to we no longer have to give in to temptation we no longer have to be slaves to our failures and one day he'll take away the presence of sin have you found it so if you find god's leader if you find jesus christ you'll find an answer to your failures that goes further than you ever imagined that it could Well, we're not going to have a question time today. We normally would at the end of a series, but please do email me. You'll find my email, jeremy at trinity.listington, on the back of the service sheet. Stick around afterwards if you've got questions. But for the meantime, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. That is your New Testament people. We don't have to be slaves to our failures. I, I pray, Father God, we'd see failure for what it is. Maybe there'll be some things in our lives that we realize aren't failures. Uh, but there'll be other areas where we see things that are. I pray, Father, that we would throw ourselves on your mercy and grace. I pray we know that you've given us a firm place in your presence in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would know both the penalty and the power of sin dealt with in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask in his name. Amen.